to the Bulwark Podcast. It's another Summer Monday, which means that I, Amanda Carpenter, am here filling in for Charlie Sykes with my good friend and colleague, Will Salatin. Will, how you doing? All right. I was. Uh, how was your fourth? We had the fourth off. I know. You know, I felt like it's been a long time. And it's like, yeah, it has been a long time. It's been a whole two weeks. We had a great fourth. Went and saw a lovely parade, hung out, you know, found a cold creek to stick our feet in, that kind of thing. How about you? Great. We got together with some friends and family. Um, but, you know, I, I want to say one thing. I feel really bad. To, I want to apologize to the dogs of America. Uh, <laughs> that, like, my sister-in-law's dog was completely freaked out. This happens every year, folks, for those who aren't aware. Dogs get, a lot of dogs get freaked out by fireworks. They don't know what it is. My sister-in-law's dog spent the night in the bathtub and my sister-in-law oh. had to go with her. And I just, I felt bad for my sister-in-law, but I just thought of all these poor dogs who don't know anything about the uh, about Independence Day and how we celebrate it. So to all the dogs of America, I'm sorry. And maybe we can come up with a solution like earphones or something to like plug it up so you don't have to listen to it. Well, I feel like the compromise is that we just do fireworks on the 4th of July. You know, I enjoy them. I like to see them. But it seems like it becomes just fireworks for the whole week. And what really kind of sets me off is when people light them off before it's dark. Where I live, I can hear them going off around maybe 7 o'clock, still fully light outside. And it's just like, what are you doing? Wait until 10 p.m. Because you're just, maybe they're too cheap. I don't know. That's like another whole thing, the fireworks. I, I worked at a fireworks stand in college, actually. It was a lot of fun. It was in Indiana, one of the easiest jobs. But a lot of the fireworks were, like, damaged and so we could take all the damaged ones home. So just these giant, I don't know, birthday cake, Roman candle type things. But you never knew what, what was going to happen <laughs> when you let them off. And uh, yeah, so that's my memory from that. And also having to constantly remind people that no, you cannot smoke cigarettes inside the, the tent because <laughs> we're on the side of the road. And so people would always just like start to light up and just casually walk towards right. the firework tent. It happened more than you think. So that's just as yeah. Sarah, could you please put that put that out out by your car? Can't come in the tent. I know we're outdoors, but right. kind of a fire hazard. I grew up in Texas, and so I, in Texas, for everybody who isn't aware, fireworks are the second most favorite explosive noise. <laughs> you what can is guess the first? The first is gunfire. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I'm being a little unfair to my home state, but uh, yeah, fireworks is a big thing in Texas too. So I'm much the same experience. Yeah. Well, one more family story. It was great, great Fourth of July. You guys knew we had a great vacation, swimming with the dolphins and all that stuff. But I've had kind of been dreading coming back and getting to normal because one of my kids had a big dental appointment to start getting outfitted for braces. But before that, I don't know if you've ever had to deal with this, but there's a palatal expander. Have you Ooh, heard of this thing? Yes. Yes. Okay. I had not heard of this. So you get a device in the roof of your mouth. Like, okay, no problem. It's kind of like a retainer. But what I didn't know is that you have to like put a key in it and manually crank it every night to physically make the roof of the mouth bigger. Right. What? Right. What? It's, it's I as the parent have to do this. And I am kind of freaking out because this seems medieval. And I have to pretend like, oh, it's no big deal. It's just time to crank your mouth open, lay down, yeah. dear child. Well, and for, I am silently freaking out every single time yeah, I have to do it. Well, see, for Jews, we have circumcision, and after that, it's all downhill. <laughs> I mean, everything you do to your kid after that just feels like not that big a deal. 
Oh, okay. Well, I'm just going to grin and bear it. You probably didn't remember that one. I have to like have the living memory of cranking my kid's mouth open with a screw every night for the rest of my life. It's our little tribute to the 13th century. Yep. <laughs> okay. Well, back in the real world, which I don't know, I, I think the politics is less painful than having to crank your child's mouth open, but maybe not for Joe Biden this week. Yep. Plenty of fireworks for him. <laughs> See what we did there? Is this hate on Joe Biden week? It's been coming, but every day it seems like there's a story about how unhappy the Democratic activists are, how bad his polling is, how old he is, when is he going to get out of the way? It seems like a lot. Yeah, it, this just reminds me a lot of when Obama was president and everything was Obama's fault. <laughs> you know, the weather was Obama's fault. Uh, there's a lot of things happening that are not Joe Biden's fault, but like people just by default expect the president to do something about them. I think he's getting kind of a bum rap, so I'm, I'm here to defend him. Here's one thing that I just noticed that is so different between how the Democratic sort of network handles Biden versus how the Republicans handled Trump, which of course is different. But the backstop with Trump was always, at least he beat Hillary Clinton. Like Sarah Palin would have this like cutesy thing, anybody but Clinton, no matter what Donald Trump could do, at the end of the day, they'd still be thankful and happy for him because he beat Hillary Clinton. You get none of that sentiment from the Democrats these days. Have I missed it? Does anybody express that? Like, yeah, it's rough right now, but Thank God he beat Trump and he's the force, you know, holding them back for now. Well, first of all, ingratitude is a fundamental trait of voters, right? Like you solved, you solved the problem we had in the last election. Nobody gives you credit for that. Now, what, what are you doing for us now? So the fact that he got Trump, got rid of Trump is gone. You know, Amanda, I was at Slate. I was in sort of progressive political area. I come to the Borg and I, looking back at progressives, the conclusion that I've tentatively come to is that it is in the nature of progressives to be dissatisfied, right? Uh, conservatives a little bit less so. They're, they're unhappy with things, but conservatives are kind of trying to keep things the way they are. Progressives are constantly at the leading edge. Why, you know, why aren't you doing more about this? That And so I think it is just going to be in the nature of the Democratic coalition that they're always going to be unhappy with the president that he isn't doing more. Well, what do you think about the executive order that he announced on abortion on Friday? I was, you know, curious about that. So let's sort of set up the state of play here. It's been, what, two weeks after the Roe decision was announced mm -hmm. before he came forward with this press conference and announced a series of actions. We'll get into that. But were, were you pleased that he did this? Do you think it's interesting, important? I, I think that what he announced was lame. I mean, I agree with the people who say it was lame, but it, I, I actually think that's okay. I mean, look, the White House has not figured out what they want to do about this. They are right. extremely limited in what they can do. Well, let's lay this out. What the executive order did essentially directed Health and Human Services to uh, go study and issue a report about maybe what you guys can do, um, expanded some funding for uh, emergency contraception, IUDs. Uh, Garland put out a statement saying states can't ban the abortion pill, which, you know, that's going to go up for a legal challenge in like two seconds. And did some other things about patient privacy and clarifying what doctors can do under HIPAA. Uh, I want to talk more about that. But those are sort of the broad contours. He essentially chucked it to HHS and said, give me some options. Right. Uh, most of the executive order is exactly what you described, Amanda. It's basically, we, we don't know what we want to do yet. We don't know what we can do. So you, you know, Javier Becerra, you, you go figure this out. 
and come back to me with a plan. Like normally, right, you would you would say, hey, we can't do an executive order yet because we don't know what we can do. Instead, they put out this executive order that says, we'll figure something out in the next month. But why did it take two weeks to even do that? You know, we knew this decision was coming. It was leaked. You had weeks and weeks of a heads up. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm setting aside my personal feelings about the issue and just talking about the raw politics of this and how to respond to right. sort of a political crisis. This should right. have been ready to go. And the obvious solution, which he still waited weeks to do, was as soon as the decision was out, go out and say you want Congress to codify Roe v. Wade and leave it there. That seems like easy, easy, easy. But even that took him weeks to do. Right. But, well, first of all, what if the answer is that the executive branch can't do much at all about this? I mean, can, a, a little bit, but basically is, is limited. I mean, Congress, can, you're, you're exactly right. Congress can do a lot. And that's kind of what Biden was saying in this speech. I mean, he wants to, you know, people, Joe Biden, what are you going to do about it? And Biden's answer really is, it's really not on me, it's on you. I mean, the the thing that I keep imploring pro-choice people to, to focus on here is, this is no longer about the Supreme Court. Do not be going to like protest at Brett Kavanaugh eating dinner or at his house or whatever. This, the Supreme Court did not take this issue away from you. The Supreme Court gave this issue to you. You should be out there protesting and voting at the state level, your governors, your state legislators. And what Biden was saying, you made a really good point, Amanda, it's about Congress too. Congress can codify what's in Roe v. Wade. They can pass a law and they don't have the numbers to do that yet. But guess who decides whether Congress has the numbers to do that? It's you, the voters. So Biden was kind of throwing it back to the voters and saying, for God's sake, people, get out there and vote and vote on this issue. Do not stay home because you are unhappy with, you know, that I didn't do more for you on the economy. You know, the Republican voters are getting out. They're voting on inflation and other issues. You, Democratic voters, get out and vote in the midterms. Even though you are the in party, you need to vote. If you do that, you will get a Congress that will codify Roe versus Wade. And that's the answer. Yeah. What he needs to do is take the protesters outside the White House, is wind them up and spin them in a more productive direction. But for some reason, they seem afraid to do that until his outgoing communications director, Kate Bedingfield, had this quote that made everybody angry over the weekend. Here's what she said. The president has been showing his deep outrage as an American and executing his bold plan, uh, question mark, which <laughs> is a product of months of hard work ever since the decision was handed down. Okay, questionable there. Um, but then she went on to say that his goal in responding to Dobbs is not to satisfy some activists who have been consistently out of step with the mainstream of the Democratic Party, but to deliver help to women in danger and assemble a broad-based coalition to defend women's right to choose now, et cetera. Ah, uh, it doesn't seem like things are going well. <laughs> well, you know, in his defense, a lot of the activists are out of step. I mean, a lot of pro-choice activists want to codify their what they wish Roe versus Wade still was, and that is the almost no restrictions allowed on abortion until the third trimester. You know, no, well, I, hold on. One of the wacky ideas, which I, I wish, you know, when you say people are out of step, I wish you would explain and say what the thing was, because the thing that I thought was just wacky that came out as a proposed solution is that there were Democrats talking about opening abortion clinics on federal lands. Oh, like yeah. that was, a, is okay. I think it was a serious proposal. Is that a serious proposal? Well, it is on their part in, in terms of their subjectively, it is a serious proposal. Oh, I mean, gosh. the federal state judicial issues that are, that this raises are 
enormous, and I'm pretty sure the feds would lose this. Well, hold on. Can you imagine how this would get spun in two seconds? Abortion clinics operated by the federal government. Right, which is prohibited by the, the Hyde Amendment does not allow the federal government. Yeah, I mean, to just go. throwing out the logistics of it. Just imagine how that sounds to people who are sympathetic to the pro-life cause. Right. It sounds frightening. Right. And, and, and people, by the way, I have looked at polling on this. In almost every state in the country, if you vote and you are pro-choice, if pro-choice people come out and vote, you will get the policies you want, but you have to vote. That's kind of the message there. Can I say one thing about this sort of the Kate Bedingfield business about where you, the, the activists being out of step? Okay. You can't, if you are the government, which is what Kate Bedingfield and Joe Biden are, right? You can't just be bitching about other, the activists being out of state. You have to model, you know, what the, I mean, Biden said in his speech something about we're the mainstream and they're the extreme, the Republicans are the extreme. So you have to model what mainstream politics are, including on this issue. Mm. Let me tell you what Republicans would do in this situation. Republicans have no problem saying, we're going to take the 1% of this issue, whatever it is, that is most painful for the other party, that is hardest for them to defend, and we're just going to focus ruthlessly on that. We're not going to try to win everything the way progressives generally do, right? So the Democratic equivalent in, that's, in this situation would be to say rape and incest, right? And here's Joe Biden in this speech talking about the 10-year-old rape survivor in Ohio who has to travel out of state. Which via- is a story that has some questions now. Okay, but the issue of rape survivors generally, that mm-hmm. is a 75%, 80% issue in America. People are overwhelmingly on the side that abortions should be allowed in cases of rape or incest. It, it is insane to me that if if you want to pass a law in Congress right now and you and you want to put Republicans on record right before a midterm election, which is what you would do if you were smart politically like the Republicans are, you would say we're going to propose a federal law that says no matter what state you live in, if you are a survivor of rape, you will be able you will be allowed to get an abortion. And that that, Amanda, goes against a bunch of these trigger laws, a bunch of state laws that are already going into place. It goes against Christy Nome in South Dakota. I can't think of how many other Republican governors have a position that does not allow an exception for rape or incest. Now, the progressive activists will get pissed off because like, this only covers like 1% or whatever of cases. This is not most women. Mm-hmm. But that's not the way Republicans think. How can we hurt you? And if you're going into a midterm election, I think this is a topic that Democrats should be hammering and they should be making it a a focal issue. I'm not a hundred percent sure about that. Um, number one, if the president of the United States does want to talk about one of these traumatic stories, it needs to be vetted. There's been people trying to follow up on this story. It's hard to nail down, which I don't know why you would use that story where you don't have an actual person who is willing or able. I mean, she's 10. If it happened the way everyone says it did to go talk about it, there are women who are grown up now who can talk about that experience and explain, you know, why it was so traumatic and, you know, whatever, whatever they need to say. But I'm not sure it's as persuasive as you think it is, because I've heard so many stories in the pro-life community about a woman who was raped and then did go through with having the baby. And, you know, she's celebrated in her churches and her other places where she's a part of a community for going through with that ordeal. I mean, these women are held up as heroes, uh, and so I, I, I'm just not 100% sold on that idea. But if you're gonna, if you're gonna tell those stories, find women who can do it with their own words and their own truth. 
Okay, but Amanda, in those stories that you're describing where the woman went through with the pregnancy, who made that decision to go through with the pregnancy? Was it the government or was it the woman? I mean, I can't speak for every woman that's been in that scenario, especially if it's, you know, girls that were 14 or 15. Mm -hmm. This isn't a blanket scenario, and I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying because there's been people looking for ways to poke holes in these stories. We have problems with women not being believed in the first place. If the president of the United States is going to tell a story like this, there should be women who are able to back it up in their own words. I I think it'd be much more persuasive. But aside from that whole issue, if you want to get, you know, a pro-lifer, which I consider myself to be like me, something that is persuasive, you talk about, okay, let's say we're going to go through with enforcing these laws. How big and invasive and intrusive of a government will you need to get there? Because while I want to celebrate the culture of life and make sure that women, you know, can have babies and we do all we can to support that, I also know that these vigilante laws coming out of places like Texas, people talking about stopping women from the ability to travel over state lines, giving people to question women who may have had a miscarriage and put her up for possible prosecution, her doctors who helped her. That is a world I don't want to live in. That gets really scary. And I was happy to see part of what was buried in Biden's executive order is that he wanted to talk about the role of doctors. I've talked to a couple doctors who are concerned about this issue because they need the ability to help women who are in desperate situations. And all of a sudden you have someone hovering over the back. You know, if a woman has a miscarriage, she goes in there and she needs treatment in order to save her life. There are people who will look at that situation and wonder if it was an abortion. And all of a sudden, this doctor has to justify what he did, document it, be subject to lawyers. That is insane to force people to go through in such a traumatic circumstance. We are lucky that we have doctors who are able to assist women But once you start putting those barriers into place and all of a sudden they have to second guess themselves in order to save their practice, you know, I I think that is something that is much more persuasive when we are forced to think about the consequences of these kind of laws. So I agree with you there. I mean, I personally start from the philosophical question of whether the woman or the government should be making the decision. And I would just point out on on that point in the, in the cases that you were describing of these rape survivors choosing to go through the pregnancy, to me, the operative word in that sentence is choose, right? The, it, it is absolutely heroic to, to be the victim of, uh, of this violent attack, the next, next worst thing to being murdered. Sometimes people would argue worse and to decide you're going to go through the pregnancy. That is an act of self-sacrifice I can hardly contemplate, but that is a choice that that woman makes. It's a completely different thing for the government to tell her we're going to make you go through with that pregnancy, a pregnancy where you didn't, you, you were violently attacked and you now have to bear your rapist child. That is absolutely an 80% or more issue. God bless you, Amanda, but if that is the way the abortion issue is framed in this country, pro-lifers will absolutely lose on it. Yeah, well, I, I absolutely hear what you're saying. I'm just saying from the pro-life community perspective, when you talk about whether it's a woman's decision or the government's decision, you are leaving out the baby in that scenario. Mm -hmm. And there are many people who believe that in that terrible circumstance, a life shouldn't be taken because of another person's terrible action. You know, I'm not saying I want to force people to go through with this. I'm just saying that is the belief. You can't budge people from that. 
it's not talked about because they know what kind of backlash they're going to get. But 100%, when you leave out the life of a child from that kind of binary choice, I, I think you're sort of missing where people are coming from on that. But you're probably right politically. I fully, I fully give you that. So I respect your point about the child, and I, 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 that is important. Let, let me let me go to your second point, though, the, the second reason why. I think, and and this, this is where I agree with you, what you were describing about the laws themselves, the logistics of implementing these abortion laws. It, you know, it sounds good in principle to say we want a culture of life, and George W. Bush said that, and every Republican president has said that. It, the Actually implementing that in laws, the, the, the restrictions that you have to put on, the, the way you enforce them, it gets ugly very quickly. It, it is intrusive, as you said. You have, are, are you going to investigate you know, how someone, did someone receive pills in the mail? Are we going to go through her online communications to like verify? You're going to prosecute this doctor on what basis? You're going to have to get evidence from the woman. Stopping women from crossing state lines, crazy. you know, that that's like you're in the United States of America. We will not let you travel across state lines. Uh, I, that is, again, a libertarian nightmare. So I think you're exactly right that those aspects of enforcing the laws raise additional questions that sort of violate a lot of Americans' inherent sense of liberty. Okay, well, just to lighten this up a little bit, and one of the other options that was put forth that Biden might pursue in order to remedy the problem is that he should declare a public health emergency. Did you hear about that one? Yeah. Yeah. And so the White House later said it wasn't a great option because we looked at it and in the public emergency fund, there's very little money, quote, tens of thousands of dollars in it. What? I mean, that yeah. that seems like a problem for a host of other reasons. Have we depleted all our public health emergency funds? I'm not saying I'd want to use it for this necessarily, but the bank account is down to tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, no, the, I mean, COVID was a public health emergency, is, right? Yeah. But abortion is not that. I mean, the Supreme Court is not telling you what your abortion policy is. It's letting you make one. There is absolutely every state in the country and the Congress of the United States can fund these services, can pass laws, can overturn the Hyde Amendment, right? Can All these things can be legislatively achieved. So the executive, I, I don't want us to go back into this bad alley we've gotten ourselves into where the, the president is going to do executive orders and the executive branch is going to do things that really are up to legislatures, including the national legislature. Okay, now coming up, big time news tomorrow. We're getting into, I mean, maybe the ends of the January 6th hearings. They say that... Uh, Tomorrow, we're going to have one at 1 p.m. I talk about the role of extremist groups, and then we're going to have a primetime hearing on Thursday led by Adam Kinzinger, which I expect to be incredible, talking about what happened during those 187 minutes where Trump was derelict in his duty and did nothing to secure the Capitol. But setting the stage this week, everyone is looking at Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon has said that he would agree to testify Finally, uh, after stonewalling the committee, facing contempt charges, facing trial this week, and now, now suddenly, because Donald Trump waived his pretend executive privilege, he's ready to go. Do you believe him? <laughs> I I am trying to figure out what is the most cynical motive Bannon could have, because that's got to be the true one, right? Um, and I think yeah. All right, all right. So here's let me. I'll put one theory on the table, and you may agree, may agree with this one or not. I think Donald Trump is a TV guy, 
right? And he, he's obsessed with how he looks on TV and how people say about him. And it's a weakness, right? It's a weakness because a real autocrat like Vladimir Putin is like, you know what? I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care if people don't like me. But Trump is very sensitive about this stuff. So here's Trump watching these hearings and he's pissed off. He's yeah. pissed off that he's got nobody out there, quote, defending me. And he's he has said as much, right? And let's go back to, right, this is Trump's fault. It's Kevin McCarthy's fault. They pulled their people off the committee. They were going to delegitimize it. But the committee is on TV anyway. Everybody's talking about it. So now Trump's like, let me get my people out there. So my impression is that Trump actually wants Bannon to go out there and defend him. Do you think that's true or not? I think it's partly true, but Steve Bannon ain't never getting on TV in a live hearing. Uh, Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers, was also making the same request that, okay, I'll testify, but give me a live hearing, you know, oh, in prime time. He wanted it carried by all the networks. I mean, these two men are in no position to be making any kinds of demands, but I guess I do have an alternate take, and it's that, holy crap, the committee broke Steve Bannon. They broke, he's testifying. We don't know how fully he's going to cooperate but this shows the power of actually following through and filing those criminal, the criminal referral to the Department of Justice and the Department of Justice following up on it and scheduling his trial date. I, I wish it would have moved faster. Maybe we would have gotten some degree of cooperation earlier, but they broke Bannon, right? He didn't want to speak to them. And we'll see what he does. But he's this cute little play about now I'll talk. You don't get out of the contempt charges by saying, okay. Now, now maybe we can schedule a meeting long after, you know, the charges have been filed. He not only has to talk, he has to turn over the documents. We know, like, what's he going to do? Go plead the fifth a million times like Michael Flynn? Probably. But the reason there's a difference between Steve Bannon and Mark Meadows and the fact that the Department of Justice actually acted on those contempt charges is that Meadows did turn over documents. Steve Bannon has not. We know what Steve Bannon has said in public. Like, we, they don't need to talk to him and get his words on a video deposition. They need his documents because I don't think there's anything more damning he would say in a deposition that he doesn't say on his podcast every dang day. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, let's 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 separate the two guys, Trump and Bannon. So we've been talking about you. Know, uh, there's Trump's motivation, which is what I was talking about for hating hating this TV show. Bannon's motivation, I think you are right. And the, the about that, that it's the, I don't know if it's the committee that broke him. I think it's the legal process, but I think you're right that it's- Well, the only reason he was going to trial was for being in contempt of Congress. Right. And he faces two years. Like it's pretty hard to be prosecuted for that because if you just cooperate some, it generally goes away, but he did nothing. He stole one them for, you know, months and months and months. Like he was asking for it. Right. And so to the, the to the question of why now, why is he broken now? I think the answer is that the trial was set to begin on the 18th. That's a week away, right? Yep. So it's a coincidence with respect to the hearing. So, I mean, Trump's unhappy about the TV show. TV show. Bannon is, uh, you know, chickening out at the end uh, because he doesn't want to face jail time. Yeah. And the expense of the trial. I mean, he's not going to wait for that, right? So I, I think that he saves himself some costs. He say he he reduces his risk. But as you're pointing out, yeah, he's got to turn over documents. Supposedly, he is going to turn over documents. I don't know whether he'll turn over all the documents. But his lawyer did say Mr. Bannon prefers to testify in public, right? Of which, course. Which goes to exactly the point of that you were making about that he wants to put on a show. He wants to do his version of it. And the committee's not going to have any of that, right? 
They, no, I mean, the people that have been able to testify in public, they still had video depositions for hours and hours and hours beforehand. You know, Cassidy Hutchinson, it was like her fourth time. She had gone to the committee and, you know, sat behind those little Zoom things and, and talked for hours beforehand. And that's how they, you know, got the clips and teed it up for her. There's no way that they're just going to give a free mic to Bannon without, you know, they're not going to do it. They shouldn't do it, number one. Mm-hmm. But first, he has to go give up the goods which we'll see. And as to what he can testify about, you're right, his communications are more useful. His testimony, maybe not so much, but they will want to ask him questions about, you know, he was at the Willard Hotel the, the night before, the planning before January. But he was also, apparently, he talked to Trump like a week before January 6th and said, let's make January 6th the date. But Amanda, and this goes to where something we should talk about here, the ball got rolling on January 6th, well before this conversation with Steve Bannon. So I'm not sure how much Bannon can reflect on it. It goes back to December 18th and December 19th. And that's where I think this hearing is going to go. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. But just to put a cap on this, because I, I will say Bannon showed again how these MAGA folks always string along and confuse the media and create a spectacle People were running about all weekend about, you know, executive privilege and Donald Trump wrote a letter, but stop it. That was a stupid sideshow. He never had executive privilege. You know, Trump couldn't give it because Joe Biden has it now. And Steve Bannon was not a White House employee at the time of this. Like, can we just stop doing this? The point is, is that the committee exercises power by actually following through with the with referring the charges of DOJ. DOJ did it. And then he was going to trial, and then he recanted. So maybe if we move faster on uh, mechanisms and procedures like that, we'll get results faster. And I think that is a lesson for Merrick Garland to take to heart right now. Yeah, that's a very good point. But that's not what they're going to be talking about tomorrow. Uh, As you point out, well, actually, you know who can explain it better than me? is Jamie Raskin, as he did yesterday on the Sunday show. One of the things that people are going to learn is the fundamental importance of a meeting that took place in the White House uh, on December the 18th. And uh, on that day, the group of lawyers, of outside lawyers who've been denominated team crazy by people uh, in and around the White House, uh, came in uh, to try to urge several new courses of action, including the seizure of voting machines around the country. And let's hear the second part of that clip. Donald Trump was, of course, the central figure who set everything into motion. He was the person, Rob, who identified January 6th as the date for the big protest. And he announced that in his tweet in the middle of the night on December 19th after uh, a crazy meeting, one that has been described as the craziest meeting in the entire Trump presidency, ended December 18th and uh, Mark Meadows escorted Rudy Giuliani out the door. It sort of ended at that point. And then just an hour or two later, Donald Trump sent out the tweet that would be heard around the world. The first time in American history when a president of the United States called a protest against his own government, in fact, to try to stop the counting of electoral college votes in a presidential election he had lost. Absolutely unprecedented. Nothing like that had ever happened before. So people are going to hear the story of that tweet and then the explosive effect it had in Trump world and specifically among the domestic violent extremist groups, the most dangerous political extremists 
in the country at that point. Okay, so this is a crucial shift in the narrative of what happened leading up to January 6th. Uh, You might recall that during the uh, second Trump impeachment, there was a lot of talk about Trump's speech at the ellipse, the the January 6th speech, and that that provoked the crowd to go. And there was a whole dispute about whether Trump said, you know, they should do it peacefully and all that stuff. What's happened over the course of the investigation is that the committee has found much more evidence of the planning leading up to this. And so the moment that is now understood to have provoked, to have led to a lot of the violence is not the speech on January 6th. By then it was all in motion. It is this meeting at the White House on December 18th, Trump the, with with, the, with Team Crazy, with Giuliani and Powell and Mike Flynn, and then Trump sending out this tweet a couple hours later on the wee, wee hours of the morning on December 19th. And then all of the extremist groups picking up on that and saying, we're coming to the Capitol on January 6th, which led to the violence. Yeah, it's not, and I really liked how we put this. I mean, this they're going to tell the story of what happened when Team Crazy fully took over. That point, December 18th, you know, Bill Barr was on his way out the door. You know, Jared Kushner was doing whatever he's doing in Saudi Arabia, working on Middle East peace or whatever. <laughs> this is the moment the crazies officially took over. The White House meeting, December 18th, where Trump is talking about putting Sidney Powell in charge of some special investigation to seize voting machines and do Lord knows what. You know, we've talked we've sort of had all the stories from the officials so far, you know, Cassidy Hutchinson, Mark Short, people who probably thought they were team normal. Now we're mm-hmm. going into team crazy. Right. And and I remember from the, the Trump impeachment trial, Trump's lawyers talking about, look, you can't prove that the president's words incited this violence or that that's what he intended, et cetera, et cetera. It was all that, that this January 6th speech, you, you couldn't prove the links. What they can do with the December 18th, December 19th sequence is they can prove the links. That is, they have communications among the extremist groups, starting with that tweet, explicitly responding to it. And they can draw a direct line from Trump says, come to the, what was the tweet? It'll be there. It'll be wild. It'll be wild. Right. And it was wild, right? And and not only can they draw the sequence, the committee can draw the sequence, the, the connection directly to people who committed violence and who planned violence. So it's not just the crowd and we're not insulting all the MAGA people. It's that these people saw the tweet said we're coming to Washington, came to Washington, attacked the Capitol, committed the violence. That's a very clean analysis of what happened on January 6th. I will be very curious to see how Pat Cipollone's testimony will be incorporated into these next two hearings. Because remember, they weren't sure that they were going to get him to testify, which, by the way, we haven't had a chance to talk about this. How ridiculous is it that he thought he could evade going to Congress and talking about what happened for so long He was not President Trump's personal lawyer. He was the government lawyer. He worked for the government. He worked for us. He was paid by the taxpayer. The idea that he dragged this out for so long until Liz Cheney shamed him and Cassidy Hutchinson, you know, put his name on the record is, it's just one of the more disgraceful moments in this whole trial. So I am curious to how his testimony is going to be used because what they laid out last week in in the run up to this is that everyone knew there was a likely potential for violence. They were talking about removing the mags so that people with guns could get closer to Trump and then he would lead them to the Capitol to, you know, at least harass and intimidate Congress. I mean, these are all known factors. And Pat Cipollone, he knew it. 
He was worried about getting uh, charged with the, you know, every crime imaginable was the quote. And so I, I'm just curious how this lines up with what they plan to talk about with the extremism stuff, because until now we haven't really seen the links between what the, the officials, the team normals knew about team crazy. Yeah. Okay. So I'm a little bit skeptical of what the committee got from Cipollone. I know he's, he testified for eight hours. That's great. He talked a lot about a lot of stuff, but here's my concerns. First of all, he, the negotiate, his negotiation with the committee was that he didn't want to have to testify about his legal advice to the president. And there was a whole privilege argument. And unlike then, in case Cipollone was in the White House, he was a lawyer. And, you know, there was an argument there, at least. So the second point, one reason why I think that he drew that line in his testimony of the committee is Stephanie Murphy, a Democrat, was on Meet the Press this weekend. And she was asked, did Cipollone confirm that he told the president, you'll be charged with every crime if we do this stuff? And her response was that Cipollone confirmed the concerns that he had. That is a different thing, right? And it's consistent with the idea that he didn't tell the committee what he advised the president. He told the committee, I thought this stuff was crazy and wrong, so I didn't have anything to do with it. The problem with that is that it doesn't establish what the committee would like to establish, which is that Donald Trump was told directly by the White House lawyer this is a criminal act that you were encouraging or about to do. And that would have been extremely legally useful. And I'm betting that they didn't get that from Cipollone. Okay. Well, we, we will see how that works out in the category of, will this matter? Will it make an impact? I hope so. Not only because I've kind of been like banging this drum about the militias and the Proud Boys and all these people getting a foothold in Republican politics and making themselves comfortable at so many political events as a part of the new conservative base. There was some evidence of that that I even found pretty shocking. Last night, the Sarasota Herald Tribune, I don't know if you saw this, posted this op-ed from this nice, you know, got the picture of this woman. She's a mom. She's got her hair blown out, makeup done, lips are glossy. The whole op-ed is about how Proud Boys are really just nice, normal, concerned fathers who like to attend school board meetings. <laughs> oh, Hold on. And I'm not exaggerating. Here, here's the quote. Here's the quote. And th- there was like some whole side story about how she's mad at some other school board member. I, don't even get into that because the takeaways were essentially, but actually the Proud Boys are good. And here's what she wrote. When I think about the Proud Boys, I think of fathers, business owners, and veterans. These fathers have smoked at many school board meetings. I bet they did. They are concerned about the direction that their local schools are heading in, and I commend them for coming to school board meetings. Now, can I tell you what happens if I go to a school meeting and the Proud Boys are sitting in the back of the room? My kid's out of that school. Bye. But this is what the Sarasota Herald Tribune is posting as just a normal, got to represent both sides up at. Yeah, this stuff drives me crazy because to me, it it just illustrates the blindness of so many people on the right to terrorism when it is committed by people who look like them and think like them, right? I mean, no one, if if this were an Islamic group, that no one would say, oh, but they're very religious and devout and they're good people. And like, oh yes, they sort of advocate and commit some violence, but you know, they do it for a good cause. No one would do that, right? So this is domestic violent extremism committed by nice white Christian people is a a huge emerging problem in our country. And we cannot have one of our major political parties look the other way because these people are of the same faith or the same color. 
Yeah, I don't know how long this op-ed is going to be available. It seems like a pretty major fail because apparently she's married to a member of the Proud Boys, which is disclosed in like their own paper's previous reporting. But I really do hope after we have this hearing tomorrow where we talk about these extremist groups, someone follows up with the editorial board or whoever is responsible for publishing that up. Because listen, I believe in free speech. That's all well and good. But what is the purpose of this piece? We are having a major you know, congressional investigation into right-wing extremism and the people who help the president target Congress for the purpose of blocking the peaceful transfer of power. And we're just going to run that op-ed like it's a totally normal thing. I, you know, there's a time and place for letting people have their views, but there's an issue of platforming these kinds of voices and making this seem like a normal response and a normal point of view. And what she wrote was fundamentally dishonest when you ignore this group's long record of violence and extremism. Yeah. And look, Amanda, I hope that one of the things that comes out of tomorrow's hearings and out of the January 6th investigation in general is totally apart from Donald Trump, totally apart from that and the attack on Congress and all that stuff. I hope that the this focus, that the evidence that they have gathered about the Proud Boys, about the Oath Keepers and what they did and how they worked, will sort of expand public awareness of this problem of right-wing extremism. And I hope the next time somebody submits an op-ed, you know, saying my husband is a Proud Boy, or not even admitting it, but just defending the Proud Boys, people will think when they hear the Proud Boys, they will think of it the way they think about ISIS or Al-Qaeda. Okay. The, okay. That's, I don't know if I'd go that far, to be honest. <laughs> okay. okay. They're not chopping off people's heads. They're pretty bad. Let's let's not go that far, okay? All right. We'll disagree. We'll follow up on that. Oh, wait, actually, well, I just saw this tweet. The executive editor of the Sarasota Herald Tribune, Jennifer Orsi, says the paper aired in publishing the op-ed. They're taking it down. She says that they, they will not provide a forum for support of the Proud Boys, an extremist group, da-da-da. To do so is antithetical to our values as an organization it is outside of our responsibility to provide a fair forum for different points of views. Our editorial process failed to keep this column from being published as it appeared, which did not meet our standards, yada, yada. So it's gone. Yeah, well, that's great. That's great. I, and I think it goes a long way towards establishing that this kind of extremism is not going to be acceptable. Man, I still don't, I, I don't know how that one got through, though, Um Good they took it down. And good for them for the detailed statement, but mm, I, I still don't know how that one got there. Okay. All right. Well, let's leave Florida alone for a little bit and go to Alaska. Trump is busy doing what he always was doing. What do you think he was doing in Alaska? Was he by any chance with Sarah Palin? He was. You can escape those clips, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was I was gonna play some sound from that speech, but then I realized I just I, I can't take the sound of their voices right now, and I'm not going to do that to Bulwark listeners. But what's interesting, of course he was there uh, as a part of his continued vengeance tour to try to unseat Lisa Murkowski because she's one of the baddies that voted for impeachment. And it wasn't necessarily a disciplined speech, of course, because the only thing he got written up for was dropping an F-bond about uh, Elon Musk. But the reason he was there was to try to unseat Lisa Murkowski. And I know this is of interest to our listeners because he went on a tirade against ranked choice voting, which is probably 
the only reason Lisa Murkowski has a chance of surviving her reelection. Yeah, but that's consistent with Donald Trump's general approach to everything, which is to make it harder for voters to get what they want, right? Not just you can't mail in a ballot, but you he doesn't want people to be able to vote early in person where there's no security risk, just easy to vote that way. And, and making it impossible for people to say what their second choice is, that's classic Trump. Yeah, I just thought it was really interesting that he he almost tried to make a policy argument. Um, and he, he seems to see the writing on the wall about how Murkowski might be able to pull this off, but we shall see. Uh, but more broadly, when it comes to the midterms, you know, I... I keep having this discussion with my husband who's like, of course, Republicans are going to win. It's a midterm election, unpopular president, bad economy. I don't know. It seems like there's a chance Republicans could still blow it. And John Barrasso, a senator who does a lot of the messaging stuff for Senate Republicans, was asked about this on Fox News. They were mentioning to him that you have candidates, you know, like Herschel Walker, Eric Greitens, and Dr. Oz. Are you really going to pick up the Senate with these kind of candidates? And his backstop answer was, well, the number one issue is inflation. And it just seems to me that the Republicans are almost so greedy. They assume inflation is going to do all the work for them. And I I just don't know about that. I mean, I'm trying to remember uh, Christine O'Donnell, the, the I'm not a witch. What, what year was she? I running? think that was 2010. By the way, I got to do a quick flashback of the 20. I was working for Jim DeMint at that time when he was getting going with the Senate conservatives funds and backing a lot of the so-called anti-establishment candidates like Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, Pat Toomey, who ran against Mitch McConnell's you know, picks for the Senate. And for that, we were the bad guys, blah, 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 blah. Never really got in behind Christine O'Donnell, but she, she won her primary. But when you hear Mitch McConnell talk about those days, it's like, ugh, we had the worst candidates. It was just because of these nut job Tea Party guys that we didn't regain the Senate majority. But what the, what is Mitch McConnell doing now? He's backing these lunatics like Herschel Walker. So I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Okay. So I think you're making a really important point here. That is illustrates how even in a year when Republicans had everything going for them, and they did pretty well, they didn't do as well as they had hoped because of these lunatic candidates losing races that they shouldn't have lost, right? So, and the question is, how many of them will that happen to? How many, how many Christine O'Donnell's, how many Todd, was Todd Aiken, the guy who said, the, like, women have some magical way of making a, a rape pregnancy not oh, have? Oh, yeah. And I always get that confused with Foster Freeze, who's just said, you know, put an aspirin between your knees. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. That was a fun time. Our version of it this year is we've got, you know, the Herschel Walkers and the, the election deniers. But my point is these guys are worse. These guys are far more nutty than even the fringe candidates in the 2010 race. And now, now all the so-called team normal people, they're all in behind them. Like, they're not opposing Dr. Oz. They're going to go in and work his race. They're going to work Herschel Walkers' race. Eric Greitens wins, even though he tied up a woman in a basement. They're still going to go work his race. Okay, but you're talking about the people inside the party, the consultants, the operatives, right? True. I mean, they're 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 selling out. I'm not sure that their sellout will be enough to save some of these candidates. I I, I don't know. I mean, we'll see how how much. I, I I do want to throw one other factor into this election equation, which is that Nate Silver at 5:38 has been tracking. I did a piece last week about abortion polls and showing that you know, the, the, on, on in every poll I've seen. The abortion issue, now that it's a live issue and people have to vote on it, is, is helping Democrats. Nate Silver went through and looked at 
all six polls that are, have tracked the, the generic ballot. Are you going to vote Democratic or Republican for Congress since the Dobbs decision came down? And what he showed is that on average, there has been a three point shift to the Democrats. Now, three points is not enough to save them probably from losing the House, but it will it will significantly reduce the, the GOP's numbers if that holds. And it could get a lot worse as some of these. So I'm kind of interested to see how much that issue in particular affects the outcome of the midterms in a way that Republicans perhaps didn't anticipate. You think the Roe decision is account for that swing? What would be your alternative theory? Um, I, I do think the January 6th hearings are making a difference. My advice, what I'd be inclined to do is try to nationalize all of these, you know, nutty candidates into consolidate them into one class. You know, Carrie Lake, you have Doug Mastriano, you have Herschel Walker, you have Dr. Oz, you're going to have a few others I mean, they're defining the field. You can look at it across the board. You can you can find some decent candidates like Brian Kemp. Okay, he's an outlier. He does not cancel out crazy Carrie Lake who wants to lock up every political opponent she's ever come across. And so I don't know why that process hasn't already started. All you got to say is that, listen, things are tough. We're going to get through it. But these candidates are so obsessed with the last election. Look at these things that they want to do. And they're no different from one another, no matter where you look. It's Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, whatever. But for some reason, I don't see people making that case. And the Republican Party is going to be defined, if, if you freeze this moment in time, as someone like Ron DeSantis, because that's who everyone is playing up. That's who's raising all the money. And I think the Democrats are just missing a golden opportunity to frame this race and also the Republican Party. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out because you and I, the, the conversation we're having is a conversation going on among a lot of Democrats about how to frame the election. And uh, the, they're sort of defending the record of the Biden administration, but the negative stuff, what, what they're going to hit, you know, Kamala Harris was on TV this weekend and she was asked about this. What She was literally asked, people should vote Democratic in this in the midterms because why? And she, her first answer was democracy was on the, is on the ballot, which is sort of your answer, Amanda. I'm somewhat skeptical that people will vote on democracy. People will vote on January 6th or the election deniers or that stuff. But maybe I'm wrong. I hope I am wrong. And that is a more potent issue. You know, I believe in the democracy thing, but I would just say their party is chaos. It is chaos. With the Democrats, you know what you're going to get. You know, don't change horses in the middle of the race, all that kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. if you look at the Republican Party, it absolutely is chaos. And just not to go back to the Ron DeSantis thing, he is raising huge tons, big money right now. He has like $100 million in the bank. He's going to have more than Donald Trump at some point. And as soon as he gets through his reelection, he's going to send that to a super PAC and be away to the races. And he will be, you know, what everybody looks to and say, okay, I didn't like Donald Trump, but like, he's the kind, he's the kind of guy I like. Meanwhile, all these wackadoos who are actually on the ballot right now, this minute, are getting a free pass. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll see how, how this, I mean, I think that when Joe Biden was, was, uh, did his speech about abortion and said, we're the mainstream, they're the extreme, that's a possible framework that can co connect my issue the abortion issue with your issue of of chaos and the attacks on democracy and if but to do that to make to frame the election that way democrats have to effectively represent the mainstream and that means that they have to focus on what the voters want and not necessarily what the activists want well to be continued thank you again will salatin for you know again just allowing 
a thoughtful discussion about these really hard issues. You are just such a lovely person to talk to, and I couldn't be more grateful. Charlie will be back tomorrow. And in the meantime, Tim Miller, we are still vicariously celebrating your New York Times bestseller uh, appearance. We are so, so, so happy for you. And if you have not bought that book, go out and get it today. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.